Uh, one of our favorite meals at our, our house is um, our kids uh, call it fancies. And uh, my wife and I will get like a really nice camembert brie cheese or whatever and melt it. And then you get a baguette and you're eating the deliciousness and it's very fancy. Um, and then our kids will get Lunchables. Because <laughs> um, again, I'm like, I'm not going to waste $20 brie on you. Uh, and we uh, eat our fancies and right? Lots of times my wife and I, maybe we'll even do it after the kids go to bed. We'll eat our fancies. But some of you had that, right, where you have separate tables for different family gatherings. Now, in our passage today, this connects, trust me, uh, there was an issue going on uh, at mealtimes in the church. Uh, Huge issues going on, which we're going to discover. What was happening is the early church, the church in Corinth, was using their gatherings and their mealtimes at their gatherings as a way to make social distinctions between different classes of people, specifically between the rich and the poor. And they were using these mealtimes to go, okay, well, the rich people you're going to eat over here, and the poor people you're going to eat over here, and we're going to actually eat before you, and then there's none left for you. And it was just a gong show, which we're going to see. The, the Apostle Paul is actually, he, he seems quite upset that this is going on. So contrary to popular belief, um, the focus of this passage is actually not communion. It's not the Lord's Supper. That's not the main focus. Paul, Paul, he's not laying out, oh, here's some new theology about what the meaning of the Lord's Supper is. He's not correcting necessarily their theology about communion. What he's saying essentially in the second half of chapter 11 is how you're behaving in your gatherings doesn't line up with what the Lord's Supper represents. It's actually, there's a confliction there. You're saying one thing, and by your actions, you're actually denying what you say you believe. So as we work through, there's, there's three main points, I think, that Paul makes in this text, and then we want to um, ask, well, just how does that apply to us today? So the first point is this. Number one, class distinctions are contrary to the gospel. This is Paul's first point, starting in verse 17. He says this, but in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So here's how Paul begins. Right, if you remember last week, he says, hey, I'm commending you before he like hammers them. He says, I commend you because you're doing things. He starts this section by saying, actually, in these instructions that I'm going to give, I can't commend you at all. Now, why? He says, actually, when you get together as a church, it's not for the better. It's actually worse for you. Like, can you imagine if you came to church and I got up and said, actually, you being here it's a detriment to your spiritual walk. It's, the, it's worse that you're here. Like, that's how angry Paul is. Your gatherings, they're worse. They are not better. The big reason is, is that there's these divisions among them. And we know this all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10. Paul essentially began this letter by saying there's these divisions that are happening in the church. All these different little groups and factions and divisions going on. And he says uh, in verse uh, 18, he says, I believe it in part, 
And it's almost as if Paul is trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Surely it's not as bad as the report that came to me. So I believe it in part that this is what's happening, but maybe people are exaggerating, but there's some truth to it. And then he says this interesting phrase, there has to be factions in order that genuine faith is recognized. And you go, well, what's that about? Um, The word faction in the Greek language is different than the word division. Um, The word division was they were dividing along uh, sometimes theological lines, just deep divisions over that. The word faction actually is different than dividing over theological lines. It's choices or opinions, it's kind of like secondary things that you're, you're splitting into your little faction over here. And Paul says, actually, it's in God's providence that he allows factions to happen in the church so that the genuine spiritual quality of individual believers would be known. So it's like Paul saying, despite his frustration, he says, I get it that factions are inevitable, And there's actually a spiritual point behind it because as factions happen and you go, really? Those people are acting like that? It actually shows who those with genuine faith are, who aren't aren't getting involved in these silly little arguments and silly factions. So Paul says, it's annoying that there's factions, but I get it. So here here was the issue, issue, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating... Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I mean, needless to say, Paul sounds pretty angry. You're getting drunk at church? What? So there's a bunch of cultural stuff going on here because we, we read 1 Corinthians 11, the second half, and we go, oh, well, he's talking about communion, how we celebrate it. And you're like, how can you get drunk off a tiny little thing? That's not how they did communion, right? We do it in this way. And what actually was going on is the early church, every time they gathered, they would eat what was called a love feast. Um, it's a little bit different, but similar to our potlucks. Right? So you're like, potlucks sanctioned by God. Praise the Lord. Um, But they would do it. Everyone would bring food to the church gatherings in order to share. Bring what you can. So some who were more well-off were supposed to bring more food. Those who were poor or even some slaves who were Christians and would come to church, sometimes they they didn't bring anything. But hey, come anyways, right? And come and eat, and we're going to share all of our food Um, Think about Acts 2.44, right? They had everything in common. They shared all that they had. That's kind of the idea. Bring your food. We'll eat together. And a part of that meal, a sliver of that meal was they would partake in the Lord's Supper together. So in the midst of all of the eating, sometimes near the end, they would get up and someone would break the bread and say, this is the Lord's body for us. And they would take it and eat it together. And then they would raise the cup of wine This is uh, Jesus' blood for us, and they would all drink. It was a part of the love feast. So what was going on in Corinth then? Um, What was happening is the church was reflecting the broader cultural views. Because in Roman culture, dinner parties 
were a chance for you to divide along social lines. Um, Dinner parties were a way for you to kind of flex how high up the social ladder you were by the food that you brought, by what you served. Um, Oftentimes, people would serve the best food to their most important guests. So think about your Thanksgiving and the kids ate something different. That happened in Roman culture. You're the, you're the mayor? Well, here, we're going to give you this type of food. What are you? You're a blacksmith? You can actually go to the other room and you can eat the scraps. Um, Pliny the Younger, who was a, a historian, he talked about uh, that the best dishes were served to the richest people and the cheap scraps were served even in a different room. Um, there were two types of, of uh, formal rooms in a Roman house, what was called the triclinium, Um, That would be the equivalent of our formal dining room. And they had couches, and usually in a triclinium, you could seat maybe nine to ten people. And so if you were having a dinner party, you would invite all the most rich, powerful people to sit in the triclinium with you. That's the important people. And then they had an atrium, which uh, was uh, a lot bigger. And what you would do is send your lesser guests to the atrium, younger relatives, uh, servants would, would hang out in there. Essentially, it was an overflow room for the nobodies. So this is what was happening at the Corinthians love feasts. Because they met in their homes. So more, uh, more than likely, uh, in that day and age, if you're wealthy, you have a bigger home. So the church would say, we're going to meet in so-and-so's home because they have a huge home, because they're very wealthy. Great. But what was happening is the culture of the day of, hey, make sure you honor certain party guests and just dishonor others, that was bleeding into the the church gatherings. So a couple of things were happening. One, Paul says that they they weren't waiting for each other. And what he means by that is, listen, if you're wealthy in Roman culture, you probably don't have to work. And so uh, if, if the love feast starts at four, you're there at three. What else am I going to do? I'm wealthy. I don't have to work. And if you're a freed man or if you're a slave even, you have to work long, long hours. And oftentimes they had no control over their schedules and they would show up to the love feasts much later than the wealthy people. And so the wealthy are like, well, should we wait? Nah, let's just start. They're not here on time. We're here already because we don't have to work. Let's begin the feast. And so what would happen is when the, the, the poorer people came to the love feast, there was no food left. And sometimes the rich people were drunk because they'd been eating and drinking all afternoon. Paul says by their actions, he says, actually, you're despising the church of God. I mean, that's, that's heavy language. By the way that they were acting, they were showing that they despised the church. They were humiliating the poor because the poor would show up hungry and there was nothing left to eat. And that's why Paul can say, actually, when you're gathering together to eat, it's actually not the Lord's Supper. Do you know what he means by that? He says, your actions are the opposite of what the Lord's Supper is meant to represent. So do you see the hypocrisy? We're coming together. We're going to have a love feast. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which represents sacrifice. 
And they're like, let's not wait for other people. Let's start, blah, 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 and start, and drinking and getting, he's like, you're calling that the Lord's Supper? No, 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 no. That's the opposite of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper conveyed to the church that every participant is precious to God. Jesus' blood was spilled for them and his body was broken for them. You are all welcome regardless of race, age, gender, social status. And what the Corinthians' meals were communicating is actually there's some of us who are worthless nobodies. Not worth waiting for. So class distinctions are contrary to the gospel. Now, you, you might ask, okay, but does that happen in our day and age? Like when we have our pierogi thing, are, are, are people going to go down and eat all the pierogies before anyone else comes? Like probably not, probably not. But does that kind of stuff happen? Like is this relevant to us? Do we actually behave like this? And actually uh, way more than you think. I'll give you a few examples. Um, uh, this was a few years ago, but I read an article. There was a church in New York City um, that was quite a popular church. Lots of people came, and then actually there were a few celebrities that came to this church service. So you have a famous NBA basketball player who wants to come to church. Uh, you have Justin Bieber who wants to come to church, or whatever. And praise God, they want to go to church. That's awesome. But what that church did was, well, let's create a VIP section then. And when Justin Bieber comes into the service, he doesn't have to find a seat at the back. We've roped off a section for him. That's the same thing. We're going to treat you better because you're better than all these worthless nobodies that can sit at the back. Let's bring you into the roped off VIP section at church. Um, the last church that I was at, um, there was a, a family in the church that... Um, there was some sin issues going on, and so I was the youth pastor, and I went to our uh, executive pastor, and I said, um, are you aware of this? There's some very blatant sin issues going on in this family, and, and so we need, to, we need to do church discipline on them. They need to be told that it's wrong. We need to confront them lovingly, and the response that I got was, ooh, Andrew, that family is one of the biggest tithers in our church, so we got to tread carefully. Because, I mean, if they stopped giving, that's a huge part of our budget. That's the same thing. Really, we're going to treat people differently because they give more to the church? Like, that sounds like class distinctions, does it not? Um, that same church, this was after I left, but they had business meetings. And the, the idea was, well, let's have a separate business meeting for people that give $10,000 or more a year to this church. Um, that, that sounds like we're dividing by social class, does it not? So listen, I mean, it happens in churches today, more than you would think. The temptation to say, well, we're going to treat people differently based on how well off they are. And even if it's not, you know, a, a concrete example in the church, some of us the temptation is there to go, well, I'm going to treat that person a little bit differently because they're a little bit more well off. Maybe they can do a favor for me in the future. So the temptation is there for us to treat people differently based on race or age or gender or social status. That's why Paul's saying when you do that, you are living contrary to the gospel. 
Um, even if you flip over to the book of James, James makes this really apparent. He says in James chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 6, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. So it's that example, like if, if, if a, a celebrity walked in, if the mayor, I don't know if she's a celebrity, but if she walked in and then a homeless man walked in, if we go to the mayor and say, oh, it's so great to see you, come on in, we'll get you a seat, here's a bulletin, and we go to the homeless man and say, hey, make sure you follow him so he's not stealing stuff. You have judged incorrectly. And the Bible says, Shame on you for making class distinctions between people and treating a rich person better than a poor person. Paul says, you might as well not even gather as a church. It's worse for you to gather if you're going to behave like that. Um, class distinctions are contrary to the gospel. Secondly, the Lord's Supper shows us the heart of the gospel. This is why Paul brings this up. He, he says, you're gathering together, you're being selfish and then you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is a celebration of sacrifice. So he's going, do you not see the hypocrisy there? Which is why he then says what he says. This is what the heart of the gospel is. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death in, until he comes. So what the Corinthian church was doing was not the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, here's what the Lord's Supper is all about. The key points being Jesus is with his disciples, even the one that betrayed him, and he breaks bread, and he tells his disciples, hey, I'm doing this for you. My, my body is about to be broken for you, and then my blood is going to be spilled for you. The whole point of the Lord's Supper is we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that he is then arrested in the, the garden, that he's put on a sham of a trial, that he is beaten, that his beard is pulled out, that he's mocked, that he's spit on, that he's whipped almost to the point of death, that he's then... Uh, has to carry his own cross outside the city, that he's nailed to a cross naked. He's raised up at eye level so everyone can mock him and laugh at him and spit on him, that he bears all of that. And above and beyond the physical pain, he bears the wrath of God for us. That's what we remember, Paul says, at the Lord's Supper. And yet, you can't even wait for the poorer people. 
a meal of sacrifice is now this meal of selfishness. So it says this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is mercy and grace lavished on to you. And the Lord's Supper is when we do that, we are proclaiming the truth of sacrificial love until Jesus returns. So the Lord's Supper is meant to show us the heart of the gospel. Um, Thirdly then, Paul finishes with this, God disciplines us when we stray from the gospel. So he's saying, like, the the way you're living, Corinthians, is contrary to the gospel. Here is the heart of the gospel. And now God's going to discipline you because you're straying from the gospel that you proclaim to believe. Um, Verse um, 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But, then we are, uh, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul says when you're behaving like this, Corinthians... And you come and you're dishonoring the Lord's Supper and you're just living contrary to what you say you believe. You're actually dishonoring the sacrifice that, that Jesus made. He says you're guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. It's such a dishonor to, to live like that. So examine yourself. Um, and that's a great bit of advice, not even just before we take the Lord's Supper together. Christians should often examine themselves. Um, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Uh, Romans 12.13, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's this part of Christianity where you're meant to examine your own heart and say, am I walking with Jesus? Is there sin or disobedience in my life? Do the, do, the, do the way, the things that I do, does it line up with what I say I believe? Now, Paul's not saying that you live in this constant fear of, am I saved? Am I not saved? Oh, I think I'm saved. Oh, no, I'm not saved. No, you can have assurance of salvation. But it's a good habit to say, okay, do, does my actions line up with what I say I believe? And if not, then, then course correct. Paul says this is why... That there, there was weakness and illness and death happening in the church. Um, they were doing it to themselves. Now, you have to hear, it's not that they, they were um, taking the, the communion wrong in the sense of like, oh, you didn't do the right steps and the ritualistic, oh, you broke the bread in the wrong spot or you walked up and you took the cup with your left hand instead of your right. It's not like ritualistic things, which I know there's some Christians who they come to the Lord's Supper and they're like, oh boy, I better do this right or I'm gonna die. So Paul's not saying like, okay, make sure you come to the table, you say the right thing and then you grab the, the bread with the right hand. It's not this ritualistic thing. But if you come to the Lord's table and you pretend to be proclaiming the death of Christ while you treat fellow Christians like garbage, maybe beware. There there might be some problems coming your way. That's what they were doing. 
We're going to treat people who are less than me like they're nobodies, and then we're going to say, thank you, Lord, for sacrificing for me. Paul says, no wonder you're weak and sick and some of you have died. The Lord is disciplining you. So listen, God disciplines us when we stray from the gospel. And you need to hear, it's not punitive, it's not vindictive, it's not God just being mean, he's not trying to destroy you. I don't think he takes pleasure in going, ooh, I'm going to get Andrew now and I'm going to cause him to, no, of course not. It is fatherly discipline. discipline. Hebrews 12 says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's actually God's love that causes him to discipline us. So like, listen, even parents, if you saw your children making decisions that are going to destroy their lives, you would be a bad parent if you said, well, okay, well, I don't want to be too harsh with them. It's like, no, you would discipline them, not because you hate them, but because you dearly love them. And, and even later on in, in uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, even our earthly fathers discipline us, and we thank them for it. So, of course, our heavenly father disciplines us because he loves us. He doesn't want you to stray off and risk eternal separation from him. Now, there's a difference between God's judgment and his discipline. Because a lot of times we use language that's like, oh, well, God's judging me for this. No, he's not. God judged Jesus on your behalf. That judgment has been paid, okay? God, however, disciplines because he longs to bring you back. Judgment, God's judgment is not restorative in nature. God's judgment is meant to show his holiness and his justice. And there's coming a day when he will judge God's discipline is meant to be restorative. It's temporary. It's God trying to draw you back by allowing certain things to happen to you because you're wandering away from the gospel. So here's a really good thing to do. When you face things in your life, whatever it it may be, hardships or problems or financial issues or uh, sickness or whatever it is, a good question to ask is, Lord, are you trying to discipline me over something. God, is this happening because, because there's sin in my life that I'm, Lord, is this thing happening to me because, because I'm walking away from you? Now, sometimes stuff happens just because it happens. We live in a sinful, broken world. I am not saying that every cold that you get, it's like, God's di-. no, okay? Sometimes you just get sick, okay? But it's a good question to ask, is it not? To just say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Am I missing something here, God? Why, why did this happen? Listen, this, this happens when we lost our one house that we really wanted and we just lost it. A good question to ask, okay, Lord, why? Why did this happen? What are you trying to teach us? Um, when, when you get sick or something happens or a, f- a financial setback, it's a good question to ask. God, what are you trying to teach me? Are you disciplining me? What do you want me to learn from this? And know that God's discipline is because he, he, he desperately loves you. And he doesn't want you to spend the rest of your life wandering away and ending up in hell. He loves you enough to discipline you. Paul's saying this is why it's happening, church. 
you're acting so contrary to the gospel. This is why God is allowing these things to happen to you. Wake up. Um, He ends this way in verse 33, uh, very practically. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Don't you wish we knew what the other things were? (laughs) But very practically, Paul says, okay, if this is the way you're going to behave, listen, you got to wait for each other. And it's like the, the, the wealthy people in the church could be like, well, we're ready to go. And it might be a few hours before the, the poor people come from their jobs. Doesn't matter. Wait for them. If you're that hungry, Paul says, eat before you come. I mean, it's like so simple, right? Rather than you getting so hungry and thirsty that you're like, let's not wait for anyone. Blah, blah, just have your dinner before you come to the church then. So that you're not just making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. So how does this apply to us? I think the first thing is that the gospel literally tears down all socioeconomic barriers, all of them. Um, Galatians 3, Paul says this, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul's saying is, he's not saying that literally there's no male or female anymore, and there's literally no different ethnicities, no, but he's saying in the light of the gospel, those things don't matter anymore. That when we come to church, we don't go, well, uh, the Caucasians can sit over here, and the people from Africa can sit here. And he says, no, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Those divisions that used to divide society, they don't exist anymore. So what that means for us is any kind of attitude of selfishness and arrogance and making divisions where there are no divisions... That, that's an attitude that's opposed to the gospel. And I think the example for us is the Lord's Supper. We want to live like people who are impacted by what the sacrifice and servitude of Jesus did for us. That we go, man, if the God of the universe can actually sacrifice himself for us, then we're not going to play these games where we place certain people up higher than other people. No, we're actually going to be servants of all. We're going to serve everyone. So, so I think the, the kind of the, the thing to reflect on is, okay, in your own walk, do you have thoughts like this where you go, well, I think I'm a little bit better than that person. I, I deserve a little bit more because I'm in a different tax bracket or because I come from a different family tree or because whatever. Like, are those thoughts in there? And if so, that would be something to repent of, to say, Jesus, my actions are, I'm living contrary to what the gospel means. And then when we gather, it's meant to be this beautiful picture where we go, actually, there are no divisions. There's no VIP section in heaven. There's no VIP section in the church. No, 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 no. Those those walls and divisions that our society makes, they, they actually don't exist anymore. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Oh, so, so 
May we live like that, yes? Just to say, I'm not going to play these silly games about class distinctions. I'm actually going to be a servant of all. So, Father, thank you for your word. Um, and again, it's, so, it's been so fascinating studying Corinthians where some of the cultural things that they did, we just don't necessarily do anymore. And yet, man, oh man, the principles that underlie them uh, are so applicable to us. Um, yes, we don't have a, a love feast every time we gather as a church, but some of those attitudes that were present in the Corinthian church, I think, can be present in our own hearts, where we make social distinctions and class differentiations between people and depending on how much money you have or what your background is or what ethnicity you are or how old you are or what gender you are. We, we, we play these games. So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us. Um, Jesus, you didn't model that kind of life for us. You came and you modeled a life of service and sacrifice for your enemies. That's the heart of the gospel. And so, God, I pray that we would live in that reality. That we wouldn't gather together and celebrate the Lord's Supper and proclaim the gospel, but then go and live and deny everything that we've claimed. Help us not to live like that. We want our walks to line up with the way that we talk. I just pray for us as a church that no matter who walked in the door, regardless of how much money is in their bank, regardless of the type of job they have, regardless of what their ethnicity is, regardless of how old they are, how young they are, the clothes that they wear, whatever it is, God, I pray that this would be a place that everyone who walks in the door is welcomed and receives honor. Uh, because you have welcomed us, Jesus. Uh, the people who least deserve it. So just do that work in us, Jesus. Just even this week, just challenge us and convict us um, as we walk with you. And so um, I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.